Dr. Christopher Ewan has taught the Bible, has taught Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years. His speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences on college campuses and in churches. Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005, Wheaton Graduate School in 2007 with a Master's of Arts in Biblical. Listen to this seven-letter Scrabble word, exegesis. Um, And received his doctorate of ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. Uh, Dr. Leon and Angela Ewan have experienced much heartache due to a prodigal son who embraced homosexuality. But God's given them the grace to rely on his power to change the unchangeable and focus on their own daily renewal and transformation. Praise the Lord. Angela and Christopher share their amazing journey in their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God and a Broken Mother's Search for Hope. Dr. Ewan's newest book is Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Give the Ewan family a hand, and I know this will bless you this morning. America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceive. When I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964, but I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night, I stayed at my friend's round-down apartment in the slum near Chinatown, and even more surprising was the day after. October 31st, when little people were masked, ring doorbell, and said, trick-or-treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and Angela, my college sweetheart, came to America a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assume, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we shall all go our separate ways. Let him be because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responds quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, 
if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live, so I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life, even though I was not a Christian at that time. I felt the need to meet with the minister, who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then. I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read a pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very excited. She told me, "Your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved." I was not very pleased. I told her, "This is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side." <laughs> But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. While studying the Word in my church and in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to Himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son Christopher walked further and further away from God, 
For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> you see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at my friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. And I began living openly as a gay man. I spent mo most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be clear, not all gay men do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. But unfortunately, that is part of my story. And when I tell you it, I have to be honest. But I also need to be honest when I tell you that when you encounter Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs. But like my classmates, I was poor. And if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father's a dentist, and he knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mother knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career, even more important than, than uh, our retirement plan. But unfortunately, here in America, many people might go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, sometimes we make our children do the same. Think about this. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a daily basis, putting more emphasis upon them getting a better grade, getting into a good school, or should Christian, Christian parents be putting more emphasis, the most emphasis, upon their children following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. But I have to be honest with you, I was not happy about that decision. <laughs> My parents, so I moved further away from them to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. And I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, 
It was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know, he never read them, and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way, if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible, but not surprisingly, he refused. But I left it on his country anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally irreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son. Nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I pray those prayers for eight years. And it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers. 
just not in the way I expect. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. That's what Chambers said. We are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's mercy. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often as the prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I did not know was that I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So beware of your mother's prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But actually, my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. That it's God's kindness. That leads us to repentance. 
Notice how Paul is not saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through. No matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And after my years in prison, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And actually, I was... I was really doing my best to stay to myself. Obviously, I did not want want to mingle very much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) I passed by this garbage can. And I looked at this trash. I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking this is the Word of God. And I even wasn't thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands. And I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple of weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. 
The prison guards handcuff me, chain my hands around my waist, shackle my feet together. I shuffle into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Ma, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare is now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hand up the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A stinging tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river Attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows roll Whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say
after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell just contemplating the complete mess that I've made of my life. I lie there in my bunk and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There is graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner. And it read, If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. And not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. And a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I'd done in my past, He still, He still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. And God was convicting me of my dependencies. Obviously drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that bondage. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of. And it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But as I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, which we'll talk in the next in the Bible hour, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion. You know, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very, very little about the Bible. So I thought I need to ask someone who studied the Bible, went to cemetery, seminary, I was like, he's got to know. And I asked him, and to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to try to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. 
I couldn't even finish that book. And I gave it back to the chaplain. Which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any shred of evidence that might possibly bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to dictate who I was. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the months and the weeks of abstinence passed... I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know that might sound weird to you, but for years as a non-Christian, the world kept telling me that it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, I learned that abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. (laughs) Third, third, I realized that after abstaining from sex, even for a little while, that my sexuality doesn't have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. And we know that's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading through the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, God says, be holy, for I am holy. I thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual as the world defines it, which means the more sexually attracted I were to lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. Right direction, too general. It's not the right goal. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality actually is not heterosexuality. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. 
As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm going to struggle or not, because we all will struggle. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm going to be tempted, because we all will be tempted. But I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life. And He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called him, collected my parents. I told them, I think God's calling me to vocational ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. (laughs) They mailed the application into Meteor Prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. I had some slim pickings in prison. (laughs) But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) I graduated from Moody 2005. Went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate in ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote the odd, my mother wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent a prodigal, but you know the best part is how God Almighty and His power and His grace brought us all back together. The back of this book has a free eight-week discussion guide that many parents are using, and even we found out that several Christian high schools are now using this as a textbook. Imagine that. We never thought that our memoir or biography would be used as a textbook, but actually, it kind of makes sense. Our children are being flooded with resources on sexuality. They're being inundated with all these stories from the world that's saying, I am gay and I'm so happy. We need to be able to provide resources and give our youth stories that talk about the beauty and the gift of biblical sexuality. You know... The primary responsibility to teach our children does not rest primarily in the hands of the public schools. Amen? I I think two of you heard me. Let me say that again. (laughs) 
the primary responsibility to teach our children sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? It also does not rest in the hands of Hollywood, of the Internet, of the peers. But unfortunately, that's where it rests today. I think it's time we take it back. I think it's time we take it back. You know whose responsibility it should rest in? Parents. And let me break that down. Mothers and fathers. And why am I breaking that down? Fathers, you teach your daughters, your sons to be courageous, to be bold, to not be afraid. But when it comes to talking about sex, you're the one that's hiding behind the couch. Fathers, if you don't talk to your children about sex and sexuality, I promise you the world will, and they'll do it gladly. But it's not just parents. You know who else? Grandparents. How many grandparents do we have in here? How many great, do we have any great grandparents in here? Raise your hand. You know why I'm adding great grandparents and grandparents? You have too much time on your hands. But actually, if you think back when you were younger, when you were teenagers, how much did you listen to your parents when you were that age? Maybe grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it for the glory of God? Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our grandchildren, to our children who are drowning in a sea of confusion? We spoke in Oklahoma one time and we gave, we gave, I gave this challenge and this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table. I think she ran even. I mean, like probably like with her walker. She made a beeline and she came up to me. She like, she was like this. I need 10 books. I was like, wow. I was like, you just need one. No young man. I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail every one of my grandchildren a book. I'm going to read it with them and I'm going to discuss it with them. That's a grandmother that's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not expose our children, but equip them. I know you're thinking, oh, I have got a, I've got a little one. You know, he's nine or ten or whatever. But remember, oftentimes, and I know Louisiana is maybe different from where I'm from, the north. But in the north, it's mandated in kindergarten, even pre-K. And don't think that that might not be on the heels too far here in the south. We need to be talking about biblical sexuality at home because silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, uh, then we need to talk about sexuality because oftentimes as parents are like, well, I don't know what to say. So I wrote my newest book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Not homosexuality and even not heterosexuality, which only talks about marriage, not about singleness, but I call it holy sexuality and the gospel, the good news. And holy sexuality, this book is where I talk about not just what you're not supposed to do, because oftentimes as a parent, your message to your children is don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't have sex, it's bad. Well, actually, sex is not bad. 
And the real message isn't that don't have sex, it's have sex, but in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And so when we just give the do not, do not, do not, well, then our kids, you know, you can't build a Christian life on God's no. What is God's yes? And we need to be able to help our kids know what is God's yes. And that is quite simply chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody, where I'm now teaching in the Bible department and theology department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon my life, most of which were far apart from Christ, and I made some really bad decisions that have resulted in some big consequences, one of those being HIV positive. But here's the reality. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person here has ever been promised tomorrow, but don't we take it for granted It took HIV for me to realize a really important truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know this world we live in, I mean, it's a crazy world. Threat of war, terrorism, the country we're at each other's throats. You know, I'm convinced this world doesn't need another good Christian. A good Christian who might go to church every Sunday. Nice person, but doing little for the kingdom of God. What we need is not more of these good Christians, but what we need are great Christians who don't settle for mediocrity, who don't care what the person on the left says, what the person on the right says, but they only care what their Heavenly Father thinks. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. Our days are numbered. And the Lord Jesus Christ might come back at any moment. Are you ready? Because whether you're ready or not, There will come one day in the blink of an eye where every person, man, woman, will stand before our God, our Creator. My hope is that He can look at you face to face and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this very day, this Lord's day. God, I thank you for the gift of life, for the breath in my lungs. God, help us to live with that sense of urgency so that we can be salt and light to a world that is dying around us, oh God. God, I pray for West Monroe. I pray for Louisiana. I pray for our country, I pray for our world, Lord God, that they would come to know you as the one true God. God, I pray that we would not waste our time chasing after the vain things of this world, but we would chase after you. God, we love you. Help us to love you more than life. We praise you and we ask this in the mighty, beautiful name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, Amen.